a Bible with you, let me invite you to open up to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, taking a little break from John today on Father's Day. And as you're turning to Luke 15, let me ask that you could be praying for Tim and Katie Drum. They're going to be heading back up to Mount Vernon, Washington this week. Uh, they've been invited to come candidate at a church for a position as youth pastor. And so they've invited uh, Katie and all the kids to come up. They'll be up there from June the 20th through the 30th. And uh, he'll preach up there next Sunday, and then that church will be voting the following Sunday whether or not they'll extend a formal call to Tim Drum to be the youth pastor up there just north of Seattle. So could you be praying for them as they travel up there this week and as they spend time at that church that God would just have his way and his will be done? Also wanted to let you know that tonight, Lisa and I are jumping on a jet plane, and we're heading to Singapore. So we're taking the second longest flight in the world. 17 hours and 15 minutes, and I'll be preaching at a camp this coming week and also at a church next weekend in Singapore with another master's graduate. And so could you pray for us as we travel? I'm going to try to uh, kind of finish what Trump started this past week. Just kidding. Uh, I'm going to be bringing the gospel, the gospel piece into, uh, into Singapore, and so we're privileged to be able to go and spend that time. Uh, Lisa's parents are in town. They're going to be watching our five kids, and then we also have our niece, Elisa, at our home, and then another friend, Mary Jo. Some of you might remember we'll be kind of watching our kids uh, for the eight days that we're gone. So I'll be here tonight because our flight doesn't fly out until like 11 p.m., so we hope to be with you throughout the Summerfest this evening, and then we'll be taking off to the airport. But next week, while I'm gone, we have Mark Rituna. We'll be preaching the Word of God to you. He's from uh, Kenya in Uganda. He's with us uh, here for seminary. He'll be preaching the Word next Sunday morning. This morning, on Father's Day, I wanted to bring to you this familiar text to us, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And of course, it's the parable of the prodigal son. And so as we look at this, I've kind of titled it a little bit different because I want us to kind of see this text somewhat through the lenses of a father. And so I've entitled the sermon this morning, The Kiss of a Father. Luke chapter 15, we'll start reading in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, forgive me the share, or excuse me, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet 
and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and he is alive again for he was lost and is found and they began to celebrate now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant and he said to him your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound but he was angry and refused to go in his father came out and entreated him but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Father, as we dive into this familiar, familiar parable this morning, I pray that you would have, help us to see it with a set of fresh eyes and a new heart and the ability to see the beauty of this father's kiss to his son and this Father's patience as well with his older son. Would you open our hearts this morning and allow us to be blessed as we read your word and you affirm these truths deep down in our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today across America, we are honoring our fathers and Father's Day has unofficially been observed in the United States since the early 1900s. But believe it or not, it was only in 1972 that President Richard Nixon finally signed a proclamation that this third Sunday of June would be a federal holiday in which we can honor our fathers. And I'm thankful for fathers who love their children and fathers who are patient with their children and fathers who point their children to Christ. Did you hear about the little child under five years old who sat in church for the very first time? The little boy watched as the ushers passed the offering plates and as the father reached back into his back pocket to pull out his wallet, the youngster piped up so that everyone can hear, don't pay for me, daddy, I'm under five. One evening, a little girl and her parents were sitting around the table eating supper, and the little girl said, Daddy, you're the boss, aren't you? Her dad smiled, pleased, and he said, Why, yes, I am. The little girl continued, That's because Mommy put you in charge, right, Daddy? <laughs> you know, little kids are just proud of their fathers, aren't they? They want to brag about what they do for a living. It was just a few months ago, I think, that Lisa heard our five-year-old little Zoe filled with life and vigor, talking to one of her friends, and she told her friend, did you know that my dad used to be a magician's assistant? <laughs> so this caught Lisa's ear a little bit. She started to lean in to listen. She said, yeah, my dad was a magician's assistant. And her friend looked at her and said, what did he do? And she said, he used to cut people's legs off. So it's just interesting, isn't it, to hear 
and to rejoice in how proud kids are of their dads. For those of you who don't know, I used to be a physician's assistant and I actually did cut people's legs open in order to remove the saphenous vein to use for a conduit, a bypass for heart surgery. But you know what, I'm thankful for Father's Day and I'm, I'm thankful that we were able to clarify with little Zoe a little bit about what dad used to do, right? Thankful for all of you dads that are out there this morning that have taken the time to, again, point your kids to Christ. There's no more important thing you can do as a dad. I, I love dads who take their kids fishing. I love it when dads take their kids to the beach or out hunting or to a ball game or to ice skating, whatever you know, we can do as dads to make memories with our boys and our girls. But I'm grateful most of all for dads who point their kids to Christ and fathers who open their Bibles in their home and teach their children about the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, God commands us to do that. God commands us in Exodus 20, verse 12, that we would honor our dads for the way that they uh, hopefully lead families. Exodus 20, 12, honor your father and mother that your days may uh, be long in the land and that the Lord your God is giving you. And so we need to honor dads, especially on a day like Father's Day. I'm thankful for a dad who always pointed me to Christ and who was always patient and kind with me. And, and God calls us to, to, to be those kinds of fathers. And one reason I think behind the, the, the command to honor fathers is that because the, the meaning of that word father in the verbal form, that word father means to be a founder, to be a foundation, to be an author. You fathers are called by God to be authors of your own home, and that means that by God's grace, you have the opportunity to create a home life that honors God, and God wants you to author a God-loving, God-fearing, and God-honoring home. I mean, listen, in, even this morning to the instructions that God has given us in Psalm 78, verse 5 through 7, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. In other words, on Father's Day, I just want to remind you that fathers have been commanded by God to teach our children and to point our children to him. And here's why. It's so that our children may know God that they might have confidence in God and put their hope in him, and that our children may not forget the works of God, that they may want to keep his commandments. The New Testament reiterates this in Ephesians 6, 4, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. That word instruction is the word nutheteo. It means to put truth into the mind of, that God's called us as dads, that we would admonish and instruct and encourage, that we put truth into the minds of our children. And we do that by telling them stories, especially biblical stories like the one that we'll look at this morning. And in Luke 15, this is a fantastic story for any dad to teach his son or his daughter. And yet it also has truths for us as fathers of an example that we could follow. And so I really want us to look this morning and I want to show you and every dad this morning from this picture of a good, good father. That's what we're looking at here in Luke chapter 15. In this parable, the prodigal son, I'm titling it again, the kiss of a father. This parable is one of the best known and the most beloved parables in all the Bible. It's one of the longest and most detailed parables. And usually a parable only has one main lesson, but this parable seems to have several. Listen to what William Cooper 
who wrote God Moves in a Mysterious Way, says about this parable, quote, the parable of the prodigal son is the most beautiful fiction that was ever invented. Our Savior's speech to his disciples with which he closed his earthly ministrations was full of the sublimest dignity and tenderest affection which surpasses everything that I have ever read. This morning, as we look at the tale of two sons, I want to give you three headings that will help you learn valuable lessons from the grace of our Heavenly Father. Number one, our first heading this morning is, let's look at the loose living of the younger son. The loose living of the younger son. Your first blank, if you are taking notes here, is the shocking request. And he said, Jesus teaching, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said this to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me, and he divided his property between them. Now, this is a very surprising and disappointing request from this younger son. It would have been a very unusual thing for a child to ask his father for his inheritance before the dad passed away. And according to Jewish law, the oldest son was to receive twice as much as the other sons of the family. According to Deuteronomy 21:17, it says that the older son would receive a double portion. So in a case like this, where a father only had two sons, the older son would get two-thirds of the estate, and the younger son would have received one-third of the estate. And with the younger son asking for his inheritance early, it's almost like him saying to his father, I wish you were dead. I wish you would go ahead and pass away and give me what I got coming to me. I get one-third of this estate, and I'm asking that you give it to me right now. It's like he's saying, I don't want to be at home. I don't want to be with you. I don't want to live here anymore. Just give me my money and let me leave. This is a shocking request. This would have cut to the heart of any father. Not only that, but this one-third of the estate would have somehow probably had to have been liquidated, which would have brought significant strain to the family farm. But this younger son doesn't care about any of that. This younger son is not respecting his family, and he's not honoring his father. He wants to take his cash and run. And I think one of the most interesting things about the parable is that the father let him do it. At the end of verse 12, it says that he divided his property between them. You might have thought that the father would say, no, I won't allow you to do that, son. It's not going to be until I die that you get your inheritance. And yet, in this story, we see here that the father does divide his property between them. Do you know what we can learn from this father here? This father was willing to give his son freedom to make some mistakes. You don't have to be perfect to belong to this family. You don't have to know the whole story, but we can guess that the father believes that it would be best to let his son learn the hard way. This can be the most difficult thing for any dad to do, especially as your children get older. We can even assume here that this younger child is of age, but we need dads to give our children some room to fail. And as your children grow older, you cannot be lording over them, dictating their every move and how they manage their, their time and even their resources. You have to, at some point, let them go. 
It's an example here. It's not easy for us as dads, but there comes a point when that's necessary. You've got to let them go, and may God give you wisdom. Don't let them go too early. Don't let them go when they're young teenagers. But when they become of age, there comes a point where your time is done with your authority and you have an influence over them, but you have to let your son go. And may God give us all as dads the wisdom and the ability to do this well, trusting God with the results. And so after we see this shocking request, the next thing we see here is the squandering of the inheritance. Look at verse 13. Now many days later, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So here we're seeing the squandering of the inheritance. And sure enough, this younger son is not headed in a very good direction. In fact, he has fallen into the deep end. He has gone headlong into his sin. What was hidden in his heart for years is now out in the open for everyone to see. He exercises no self-control, no discernment, and he lives as though he doesn't have a care in the world. And it didn't take long either. In a matter of days, he liquidated his assets and he took his money and he ran. And wanting to get away as far as possible, as far away as he can, the parable says that he took a journey into a far away country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. This word squandered means that he wasted it. It means that he scattered it. This younger son threw his money at everything and at everyone. And he threw caution into the wind. And he threw his life away, devouring the pleasures of the world, which will never satisfy. The word reckless here means that he lived senselessly or without thinking. This word reckless can also be translated as wasteful. This, by the way, is where we get the word prodigal from. A prodigal is one who lives recklessly and extravagantly, who spends his money in waste. That's what the definition of a prodigal. He, this is reckless, extravagant living, and he's wasting his money, and he's wasting his life. The same word used in Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. It's dissipation. It's a waste to become drunk because you have no control. Wine is created by God to be enjoyed unto the glory of the Father. But when you have too much, it's a waste of that liberty and of that freedom. Later in this parable, we're also told, look down at verse 30, when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes. And so we see here that this younger son threw his life away. He threw it away for the pleasure of the moment. He indulged in the flesh. He lived out his fantasies. He went hog wild. And when the clock struck midnight on this seemingly never-ending Coachella party, he finally came a little bit to his senses, right? And that leads us to the next blank, this sad situation, verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So when he hired, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And when he was longing, uh, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, 
and no one gave him anything. This is leading to a very sad situation, right? This poor man literally spent everything he had, every dime. He didn't have an emergency fund. He didn't have any savings. He didn't have a 401k. He didn't have a diversified financial portfolio. He had no investments, no savings, no one to call. And when this severe famine hit, no doubt, the economy turned to worse, and it sent everyone scrambling for survival, and the only job the son could find would be feeding these pods to these pigs. None of his so-called friends cared for him anymore now that his money was gone, and he was likely evicted out of his apartment. If he had a donkey or a chariot, it was repoed. Right? He was likely living on the streets, but at least he's looking for work, and one of the citizens of the country again hired him to feed his pigs, and the only job he could have found would have been that that would have been most distasteful for any Jew. At this point, the Jewish audience may have even gasped at the thought of this man working with swine, which were considered to be thought of as the most unclean of animals, even forbidden by the Old Testament law, and the thought of working in a pig pen would have disgusted any law-abiding Jew. Not only was this man feeding the pigs, but he himself longed to eat the same food that the pigs ate. In the New American Standard Bible, we're told, and he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. There's a note there in the NASB that says how these pods were from the carob tree. Some commentaries say that these particular pods of the carob tree would have been unedible and undigestible by a human being. And so here is this son stuck with this job that he has that he didn't want and wanting pig food that he could not eat, living in true misery. And he had no friends. And he had no family in this country. And it seems like there's no way out of this horrible situation. May this be a reminder to us this morning of how sin ruins our lives. Sin seems so fun and enticing, but it will always take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. You never win when you're stuck in your sin. Proverbs 5.22 says, The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. Proverbs 29.6, An evil man is ensnared in his transgression, but a righteous man sings and rejoices. Philippians 3.18 and 19, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. This man is at the end of his rope. This man has no hope. This man is drowning in his own sin. Whatever will this man do? That leads us to our second heading this morning, number two, the love of a good, good father. Notice first here the honor, your first blank there, the honor of the father's reputation. Verses 17 through 19 
But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. When he came to himself. This means when he came to his senses. Meaning when he woke up, like he had an epiphany. Like he realized that his father's hired servants were treated better than this. They seemed to have a roof over their heads and they seemed to always have food in their stomachs. And here he is out on the streets, possibly, and with no food to eat. While his father's servants always seemed to be well cared for. His father's servants seemed to be appreciated and receiving a fair wage. They had plenty to eat while this man is practically starving to death. This shows the honor of this father's reputation. His father was a well-respected man. His father was a great master. His father was a good boss. His father provided for his employees. His father was the kind of person that everyone enjoyed working for. His father could be trusted. His father was faithful. So the son figures that he'll get up and just go back home and he'll go up to his father and confess to him his foolishness. He will say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. In other words, I've sinned against God, and I've sinned against you. And it seems that this man has truly been humbled and has reached, again, the bottom of the barrel. It seems that he's ready to honestly confess all that he has done. And not only this, but he will say, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This shows that the man realizes the utter poverty of his situation. He doesn't deserve a handout. He doesn't ask for a special favor. He doesn't expect special treatment. He doesn't play the son card. He just wants his basic needs met. He's willing to be treated like a servant, to make a servant's pay, to live in the servant's quarters, he simply wants to be fed and have simplicity and gratitude in his life. By the way, that's partly how we know that this man had truly come to his senses. He's willing to approach his father humbly, repentantly, and demanding no special favors. He knows he deserves nothing, but he will throw himself at the mercy of the father and see what happens. And when someone is repentant like this, they're not worried about the consequences. They just want to make things right. They're willing to pay any price. They are quick to confess their sins before God and before others and let the chips fall where they may. We read a good description of this kind of genuine repentance in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11, for Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see that earnestness, this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, and what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. That passage of 2 Corinthians 7 10 through 11 really teaches us that this passage is saying it's more than just saying I'm sorry. It's not having this mindset of I'm just sorry I got called or it didn't work out. It's saying I'm sorry and I repent because God has convicted me of my sin. 
I have no regrets that my sin has come to the surface and has been brought in the open so that it can be properly dealt with. I'm eager to confess my sin and to be cleansed. I hate what I did with a holy hatred. I have now a healthy fear of God and his word. I am now innocent of this matter by the blood of Jesus. A repentant person will follow this example. They will get up and they will go to the person that they have sinned against and they will make their apology and ask for forgiveness. This prodigal son seemed to have reached this point in his life. Have you reached that place in your life? where you're so convicted of your sin? You're tired of living in the pig pen? Do you realize that no one loves you like Jesus? Have you come to your senses to where you realize that what the Father offers is better than anything this world can provide? Is it time for you as a prodigal to stop wasting your life and wasting your resources and come back to the Father who's given you life, the Father who loves sinners? This world will leave you high and dry, but the love of Christ will pursue you and it will change you and it will give you a new start. What we see next in this story is nothing short of amazing. Your next blank says the kiss of the father's forgiveness. Look at verse 20. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off. His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This second son, this prodigal son arose. He got up. He decided to make a change in his life. Remember, he had come to his senses. He decided it was finally time to go home. I remember the first time that I had the opportunity to teach this parable to my children. One of my sons was looking with wide eyes as I was describing to him what was happening. And I said, son, what do you think is going to happen when the prodigal son comes home? He's like, dad, he's going to be in big trouble. <laughs> going to be in big trouble, right? Isn't that how some of us respond? Don't you know that's how the Pharisees thought the story may go? All law and no grace. And yet it was while he was still a long way off that the father initially saw him. And this shows us that the father was looking for his son. The father may have anticipated a possible return. And it certainly seems that the father was waiting for this moment. And so what did the father do? The father saw his son on the horizon and he felt compassion. This word means to feel sympathy. It means to feel it so deeply, it's described as being in your gut. So just to be clear, the father is not angry. The father is not annoyed. The father is not anxious. The father feels compassion for his son, and he ran, and he embraced him, and he kissed him. Now, you've got to understand, in the Middle Eastern context of this parable, it was not common for an older man to run. Boys ran, teenagers ran, young men ran, old men walked. That's what old men do. You become more dignified. Older men did not run, they walked. Furthermore, in order to run, you would have to gird up your loins, which simply means you would have to gather your garment and tuck it in your belt so that you could run without tripping over yourself, which would have exposed a man's upper thighs which was unheard of in this 
culture. It would not have been customary for a man to expose his legs in this way. And so the fact that this father ran to meet his son goes completely against the cultural norm of this reunion between the father and the son. And next we see the father embraced the son. This was the embrace of gratitude, an embrace that was fueled by many prayers. This embrace was saying, son, I'm glad you're home. I missed you. I love you. There was no hesitation here. The father had likely played out this scene many times now in his head, and it's now coming true. All prejudice has been put aside. All animosity has been abandoned. All frustration has evaporated. He is now hugging his long-lost son. And then he kissed him. The kiss of a father is like no other kiss. The kiss of a father is a rugged, burly way of saying, you are my son. You are precious to me. And nothing will ever take you away. And no matter what you've ever done, I will always love you. And I will always embrace you. And every time I see you, I will hug you and I will kiss your face. This kiss of the Father conveys strength and acceptance. This kiss of the Father builds confidence in a young man. This kiss of a father is what every boy needs. Fathers, you show that kind of love. To your sons, do you embrace them? Do you affirm them for who they are? This shouldn't be a rare and uncomfortable occurrence. You ought to hug your children when they are young, and you ought to hug them still as they get old. Nothing wrong with a father hugging and embracing and kissing his son. This is a picture of God's love for you. There are no awkward hugs from God. He loves you. And he embraces you. And when you come to God in the way that this man came to his father, his arms are open wide. And he is looking and he's calling you back into relationship with him. And when we approach God in the right way, he is quick to welcome us back into his arms and to embrace us with love. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Some of you need to know that if you're running from God, it takes one step back in his direction for him to see the change in your heart and to shower you with love and embrace. Some of you need to receive this affirmation and this kiss from a heavenly father today. In Christ, you are forgiven. And in Christ, your sins are washed away. And in Christ, he sees you as his son and as his daughter. And he wants to love on you today. Let your heavenly father love you today like this father loved on his son. This father's kiss is a beautiful illustration of what we read about in Psalm 103, verses 10 through 13. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. In the faraway country, the prodigal learned the meaning of misery, but when he came back home, he learned the meaning of mercy. 
Not only do we see the father's compassion and acceptance of his son, but we also see in your next blank the lavishness of the father's love. The lavishness of his love. Verse 21, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. The son is able to make his clear confession. I have sinned against God and I have sinned against you. The son doesn't make any excuses. He doesn't say, I made a mistake. He doesn't say, I was just young and stupid. He doesn't say, I messed up. He says, I have sinned. And he owns what he has done. And he has an admirable humility as he says, I'm no longer worthy. And he gets what they say in Texas, that he, he gets snake belly low in front of his father, begging for forgiveness. This is the right approach. This is contrition. This is true brokenness. This is the realization that he deserves nothing. And before he can continue his confession, the father immediately interrupts him and instructs the servants to bring the best robe and to put a ring on his hand and to put shoes on his feet and to kill the fattened calf. If I had been in a situation as this father was, I wonder what I would have said. I probably would have said something like, whoa, 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 time out. Sorry for what? Don't you tell me all your sins. I want you to confess each one of them by name. And I want to make sure you understand what you did and how wrong that was. But that's not what this father did. I'm not saying there's never a place for that. It's important to teach repentance. It's important to hear the clear confession of a child. But there are times when this father's like moving quickly. As soon as he saw the brokenness of his son and he knew that God had already dealt with his heart, he moved quickly to love and to acceptance. The father abounds in loving kindness. Again, Psalm 103, verse 8, The Lord is merciful and glorious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Right? Do you believe that today? Do you express that to others? Fathers, are you demonstrating this to your wives and to your children? Some commentators describe how each gift that the father lavishes upon his son shows us something unique about the acceptance of his son. The robe was usually reserved for the guest of honor. The robe shows us that God desires to honor us as we honor him. The ring was a symbol of authority. Whatever the ring stamped had the weight of the authority of the household. The shoes, these are a sign of sonship. Servants didn't typically wear shoes. This shows us a full restoration into the role of being a son in good standing with the Father. Don't you know that in Christ we have on the armor of God, and in addition to the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, we have our feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. Dear child of God this morning, Dear son or daughter of God this morning, you need to know that in Christ you 
are loved with the lavish love of the Father. In Christ, you've been given a place of honor. And in Christ, you've been given an authority. And in Christ, you're wearing the shoes of God's family. And as the Father continues to give instructions for the party, he tells his servants to kill the fattened calf. This was reserved for the most special of occasions. This was the most exquisite sacrifice for a great feast with unmatched delicacies. This again represents the generosity of the Father. This is a picture of the salvation that we have in Christ. He loves us. He forgives us. And he lavishes blessings upon us. And the Father offers a toast to his son in verse 24 when it says, For this my son was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. He was dead, but he's alive. He was lost, and he is now found. This is what God has done for you and what God has done for me through repentance and faith. It's Ephesians 2, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. He's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Isn't our father a good, good father? Isn't our God worthy of all praise? Isn't this how we should be when every sinner comes home? And if the story were to end here, it would have certainly ended on a high note. But this particular father has two sons. One son who was far away but has come home, and one son who has stayed home but who in his heart was far away. And that leads us to our last heading, the legalism, number three, of the older son. Let's look at a couple of descriptions about him. We see that this older son is an angry son. Look at verses 25 through 28. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came, he drew near the house, and he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. Again, verse 25 is the kind of start to describe the older brother is innocent enough. Just, just verse 25, he's just out in the field working and he's asking what's going on. If you just looked at that one verse, it almost highlights the initial difference between the two sons. The younger son had been out partying and the older son had been in the field working. The younger son had wasted all of his money and no doubt the older son presumably had been a far greater steward of his resources. The younger son had been an embarrassment to the family, while the older son, in many ways, made his family proud. The older son then naturally asks what is going on when he heard the music and the dancing. And so a servant told him, your brother has come home. Your father's throwing a glorious party and celebrating his homecoming. He is now back safe and sound. Everything about the older brother has been fine until this moment. This is the moment of truth for the older brother. Will he forgive his younger brother and welcome him home like the father has, or will he hold a grudge? Look at verse 28. It gives us our answer. But 
he was angry, and he refused to go in. Uh-oh, we, we get our answer now. The older brother is angry, and we can see as things develop that his anger is indeed sinful. This is not anger that the name of God had been profaned. This is anger at God, anger at his dad, and anger at everyone else who's celebrating the fact that his brother had come home. This shows a terrible and ugly flaw in the character of the older brother. He is angry at his brother's return, and he will not join the others in the celebration. This is nothing short of unforgiveness of pride, and of bitterness. These two brothers are approaching the house very differently this evening. The younger brother is approaching the house in humility and confession. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not even worthy. The older brother is approaching the house in pride and in unforgiveness. The younger brother feels entirely unworthy. The older brother feels a little too worthy. The younger brother is broken and laid bare before his father. The older brother is self-inflated and is getting ready to complain to his father. Notice as well, at the end of verse 28, his father came out and entreated him. The father approaches both of his boys in the same way. He approaches them in love. The father ran to his younger son as soon as he saw him approaching the house, and the father also came out of the house to plead with the older son as soon as he was made aware of the fact that he was still outside. Father, this father desires that both boys be right with the Lord and with each other. Dads, listen to me this morning. As a father, you will have different children at different times who need the same love from you. You may show it in a different way. There are times that you need to affirm your children, and there's times you need to confront your children. There are times that you need to go easy on them, and times you need to go hard on them. There are times when your child may need a good spanking, and there are times when they may need a good talking to there are times to show mercy, and there are times to faithfully carry out loving discipline. The father in this parable is a father of understanding and of grace who is proactive in dealing with the situation at hand in the best way possible. And as the parable continues, we see to a greater degree the heart of the older son. He's not only angry, but your next blank says he's a prideful Son, Look at verses 29 and 30. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. His father is asking him to come inside and to be with the rest of the family. But the older son is obstinate. And now he tells us why. I've been here with you and served you all these years. I've never disobeyed your command. And you've never done anything like this for me. But when this son of yours, notice how he doesn't even call him by name or call him his brother. It's this son of yours comes home. You went out to him. Now part of me can understand where this older brother is coming from. 
We like to see justice done. We kind of feel it a little bit maybe for the older brother. But that part of you that understands where he's coming from, that part is your flesh. He wants a pound of flesh. Can you feel it? And this older brother is not operating out of the spirit, but out of his flesh. And some people would say, well, I think that we should give the older brother a break. He's just venting. He's just sharing how he feels. Well, that may be true, but he's still sinning. He's angry. That is clear sin, and he's angry because he doesn't like how this whole thing is going down. He's idolatrous. When he doesn't get what he wants, he makes a big deal about it at the expense of celebrating with others in their God-given joy. He's lying. He says, I've never disobeyed your command. That sounds a whole lot like the rich young ruler who told Jesus all these commands I've kept from my youth. Really? He's jealous. The younger brother gets the party, but he doesn't get one, and he's been the good kid, and he's self-righteous. He is building himself up and at the same time slandering his brother, even though his brother had repented of his sin. What's wrong with the older son? He has a sinful heart. He has a bad attitude. He has legalistic tendencies. He is focusing on the outside and not on the inside. If he was really such a great person, then he should have ran and hugged his brother. This has striking similarities in how Jonah initially felt about the Ninevites. You want me to go and spend time with them? And so Jonah ran away from God, and he had to lovingly discipline him to get him to come to his senses. And this older brother has not yet come to his senses. The older brother is steeped in his own sin, and he can't even see it. This older brother did everything right on the outside, but he is hopelessly wicked on the inside. His heart is wicked, and he can't discern or see the grace of God in this situation with his younger brother. What we're really seeing here is a very, your last blank, a very ungrateful son. A very ungrateful son, verses 31 and 32. And he said to him, this is the father speaking to the older son, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead, and he is alive. He was lost and is found. Look at what the father offers the son in these last two verses. He offers him continual availability. He says, I'll always be here for you. The father was always there for the younger son, and he will always be there for the older son as well. The father is, is also offering the older son all that he has. All that I have is yours. In other words, what are you whining about? The whole estate is yours now. What a great reminder that it is not material things that make us happy. This older son has it all, but he's still unhappy and rotten in his heart. It appears that he hates his brother and that he hates his dad. Hate, unforgiveness, and bitterness can destroy a man, and it's beginning to take its toll on the older brother. The father makes it abundantly clear that this was the right thing to do, his younger son had come home, and he will not chastise him. He will not humiliate him, and he will not withhold his love for him. He will rejoice and celebrate and be glad while the younger son was dead in his trespasses and sins. He's now been made alive. 
And while his son was lost, he's now found. Well, I wonder what happened to the older brother. I wonder if the older brother repented of his pride and came into the party. It is a parable, and we're not told of the clear ending, but if this parable is what I think it is, this is what I think Jesus was trying to accomplish in telling the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus was telling the Pharisees and the scribes that the Gentiles, or any sinner for that matter, has shunned the love of the Father and has gone out in their life and done their own thing. But all we like sheep have gone astray, each one to his own way. But if you come back, and if you're broken and repentant, and if you're wanting in, the Father will love you and forgive you and will accept you and will lavish you with love. And the religious leaders, though they are, they, they are listening to the story and maybe appreciating that to some degree, they now start to realize that they are depicted as the older brother. They, they don't want the, the older brother to be chastised for being so unforgiving. And so they, they realize that all of a sudden here that they, they're, they're like this older brother. They won't love and forgive the younger brother. They just prop themselves up by talking about how good they've been. And we see this same truth in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? It's the, the Pharisee who says, I've done all this great stuff. I fast twice a week and I offer my prayers. I'm thankful I'm not like him. And it's the tax collector who beats his chest. Oh God, I'm a sinner. So what happened to the older son? M many of you probably have read The Tale of Two Sons by John MacArthur. If you haven't, allow me to enlighten you at least on one possibility of how this story could have ended. He writes this, it is an ingenious way to end the story. It leaves us wanting to pen the ending we would like to see. In other words, he says that it just stops so abruptly. It's kind of ingenious because it gives you, the reader, the opportunity to kind of finish the story out the way that maybe you would like to. Maybe some of you would like to see it end like this. Then the older son fell on his knees before his father saying, I repent for my bitter, loveless heart and for my hypocritical service and for my pride and self-righteousness. Father, forgive me. Make me a true son. Take me inside to the feast. The father then embraced his firstborn son, smothered him with tearful, grateful kisses, took him inside and seated him alongside his brother in dual seats of honor. They all rejoiced together in the level of joy amazingly doubled. No one there would ever forget what they saw that night. That'd be a nice ending, right? You're just like, oh, that's so sweet. That's a feel-good ending. That's the kind of ending we would like, right? That would have been the perfect ending. The Pharisees had asked Jesus the ending of the parable right there. If they would have asked him, he might have said something like this. He might have just said, hey, guys, that's up to you. The Pharisees would have pushed him. What happened? He might have said, that's, that's up to you. And yet we all know what happened? What happened is, if the Pharisees are a picture of the older son, the Pharisees are responsible for killing Christ. So MacArthur writes this. You could take it or leave it. This is what he writes. Quote, since the father figure in the parable represents Christ and the elder brother is a symbol of Israel's religious elite, in effect, the true ending of the story as written by the scribes and Pharisees themselves ought to read something like this. The elder son was outraged at his father. 
he picked up a piece of lumber and beat him to death in front of everyone. Well, that brings a whole other feeling to the story, doesn't it? If the parable is really about lost sinners coming home and legalistic, quote-unquote, religious people hating grace and wanting to earn what they get by the works that they do, then they don't like this parable because it really puts into focus while we celebrate the forgiveness of the younger son, we're all convicted maybe by the response of this older son. And the truth is this, in many years of being a pastor, as a youth pastor, as a senior pastor, I have met and seen many younger sons come back to the Lord. By God's grace, I've seen many Young men and women run wild in the world and by God's grace come back and to repent. But did you know I've seen just as many older sons who have this piety and pride in their lives? Some have preferred nursing their anger rather than enjoying fellowship with God and his people because they will not forgive. They have alienated themselves from the church and even from their own family. And they are sure that everyone else is wrong and they alone are right. They can talk loudly about the sins of others, but they're blind to their own sins. I can never forgive, General Oglethorpe said to John Wesley, to which Wesley replied, then, sir, I hope you never sin. Don't stand outside. Come in and enjoy the feast. Allow yourself to receive the kiss of the Father. As we end, just look at these three questions. Are you more like the older son or the younger son? Are you more like the younger son or the older son? Which one fits the description of your life today? Are you more of the prodigal who's wasted your life? Then I call you to come home. Are you more like the religious one who grew up in the church, but you're filled with pride and you're filled with hypocrisy? The Father comes out to both. Second, is it possible that you're close to the things of God, but your heart is far away? Remember, again, the older son was close to the father in proximity, but his heart was far, far away. Number three, have you allowed yourself to receive the kiss of the father? Let's pray together. God, we need your help this morning that we would see this parable in all of its glory that we would see fresh and anew the beauty of the kiss of the father extended to the younger son and for all of us who have been prodigals at one point in our life, that we would come home, Lord, that we would come home and come to our, our senses and see the love of the father. But there be some of us here, maybe even more guilty of being like the second son, filled with spiritual pride and filled with thinking that we deserve. I pray that we would equally come home God, we don't want to stand outside while the marriage feast is happening inside. Lord, we don't want to be like that older son. No matter how good he was on the outside, he needed a change on the inside. And so, Father, as we examine how you treated in this picture of this parable, the lost and the found, I pray, God, that each one of us today would examine our hearts before you, before your word, and that we would come home and acknowledge that you are truly a good, good Father. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.